Tonight on Arena, Todd Field on his new film Tar, starring Kate Blanchett, and The Last of Us, the story of a dystopian post-pandemic US where military rules. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Tonight is film review tonight and the big screen draw this week. Bringing with it Oscar buzz for its star Kate Blanchett is Tar. Lydia Tarr, the central character in Todd Field's film, is a world-renowned conductor, the first female chief conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra in this story. She is a woman equally to be feared and respected in the classical music community. Played by Blanchette, Tarr is an obsessive... She's obsessive about her craft, she's a tyrant in many ways, and her tyranny comes back to haunt her as the film progresses. film has been generating enormous praise ahead of its Irish release tomorrow. Before we ask our viewers about it and two other films, films, let me bring you to this morning where I spoke to director Todd Field about Tar. I put it to him that given that the film's major theme is power and the exercise of power, it could in fact have been set maybe in the world of business, the world of banking or the world of sport. So why specifically did Todd Field choose the world of classical music? You know, the studio came to me and and they had a vague idea that they wanted a, a film about a conductor. Um, and this was a character I had been thinking about for many, many years. And I didn't know what I would ever do with her. Um, if I did anything with her, you know, whether it was in a piece of fiction or uh, hopefully in a film someday, but basically a character who's, as you say, could be sitting at the top of a multinational energy company or, uh, you know, in any number of very clear power structures. Um, so when they when they said that, I said, oh, perfect. OK, an orchestra. Excellent. You know, you know, because when you're looking at power, you're looking at a pyramid of power and who sits at the top of it and what better frame to fill than a, than a, the triangle of a symphony orchestra with somebody sitting at the very tip of it, the podium, you know, um, so that that was a that was a handy visual and not to mention the fact of um, the sort of very recent sort of um, conversation in classical music about the abuse of power essentially the patriarchal abuse of power that you know has sort of historically um gone on for many 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 years and the idea of having it not be a, a male conductor w was essential in terms of uh, hopefully having an arms like uh you know relationship to to examining power because you're not reading about women doing these sorts of things and for good reason you know, they, they don't hold the power we haven't had a you know a female chief conductor ever uh, in the, in the history of the world, uh, in a uh, in in a major German orchestra, mm. or in a, one of the big five orchestras of of America. So you you have the female conductor at this point. At what point in your mind did it become a gay female conductor, and how important was that sexual politics alongside the gender politics? Um, well, the character I thought of had always been a lesbian, um, and um, and I think for for again for the same reason, which is we're not reading about. Uh, lesbians in huge uh, power positions, you know, abusing their power involved in scandal. Um, that's been an identity that has been marginalized by society for, for many, many years and, and until recently. Um, and so you're talking about people that have had no access to this kind of agency that men have had, you know, um, it was as simple as that. And you as a man writing about that, had you any anxieties around that? How did you go about finding out more about uh, that world of which you are not a part? 
Well, I don't feel like I'm an expert about, you know, straight white males either. You know, I, I'm an expert about me. I, I believe in human beings and I don't think we're all that different. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm not into tokenism and I, I don't believe that I'm making a, a documentary. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm into masquerades. I'm, I'm a, a person that pretends for a living. So um, I, I, I know that, uh, you know, there are people, somehow people think that uh, if you, um, that if you're telling a story about characters that somehow you have to have some kind of supposed expertise based upon your own personal experience, but that's utter poppycock. You had written the script with Kate Blanchett in, in mind. Did she feel the same way about that utter poppycock, as you call it, for starters? And how important was she to your vision of Lydia Tarr? Well, I think that until we're talking about characters as characters and no longer as their identities, and it's just a fact that a woman could be in power and that a lesbian could be in power, until until we have a world like that where it's just, where it's it, it doesn't matter. That's that's who the character is, as opposed to that you're making a film about a, a lesbian. Um, that the world's out of balance, um, and I think that the sooner that we that we have stories that um, have the particulars of a character's life as facts as opposed to messages, uh, all the better. And I think Kate, I know Kate agrees with that. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of your other question, I think that, you know, there's a, you're talking about, you're talking about an access point where hopefully, um, you know, your background and your, and your, um, your personal circumstances are, are somewhat irrelevant, but that we all sort of, we all sort of, you know, um, swim in the same river together. You know, we, we're in the same world together. And and in terms of the dynamics of, of, of how we transact our business with one another, they're they're very much the same. I, I truly believe that. Let's listen to a clip which features Kate Blanchett. And th- this is a, a point when she's talking about time and the sort of the role of the conductor in controlling that time. It, it, just to give it a little more context, she this is an interview that she's having a public interview with the, the New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik in New York City. Um, and she's sort of explaining this to the uninitiated audience that's come to, to listen to her talk. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. And that's Kate Blanchett in a scene from Tar. I'm speaking with writer and director Todd Field on the programme this evening. Um, she's, a, she's a formidable woman. Uh, I wouldn't fancy being the man that had to interview her as we get in that particular clip. She's formidable in an interview. She's in formidable in front of the orchestra. Is she likeable? And does that matter? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't... That's a funny word, you know. That's a word that I've encountered before in films, um, where the studios called me up and, and said, you know, this character is not likable. And I always say, yeah, isn't it great? Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, trying to be liked is a, is kind of short beer, you know? Um, 
I think, uh, to be respected is something else. And I certainly respect the discipline with which she's conducted her art. There are other things about her that I'm a little more, more um, uh, questioning about. But it, it, in terms of her art, I have a huge amount of respect for her. Yeah, there's a very interesting scene, and it's, it's a big strand in the story, where there's a, a young student, she's giving a masterclass in Juilliard in, in the, the school in New York, the music school, and this young student identifies as BIPOC pan-gender and is questioning the whole idea that you can't play the music of Bach. He's a privileged white man who fathered many children. I think Mozart and Beethoven come under the moral microscope as well. Um, how important a theme is that of the person versus the artist in the film for you? Well, um, uh, it's a, it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it is the theme of the film, um, uh, or a theme of the film outside of, of of this examination of power and how you know the hoary cliche of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But there's, I mean, there are a few other things in that scene that you're citing that I think are important. Um, yes, this is a, a a scene where this young student. Um, is talking about their allergies to certain people based upon their historical past. Um, but that conversation is really initiated through this character, Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett, when she's um, questioning this student about their choice of music, you know, and she's, and she's kind of essentially humiliating the student uh, slowly but surely about their choice of of music and what is that music well that music is atonal which this character later will see herself is struggling to write it's uh, music that is um, uh, sung in the culture and, and lauded in the culture by Anna Thorva's daughter who's a great great practitioner of of, of this music uh, today she's a real living person um, and this character herself later says in that scene 10 minutes later that uh, she starts to mock the composer, saying that mm. she's a, a super hot young woman. So um, Lydia Tarr has her reasons for going after the student in the first place. Um, so I think there, there are different sort of ways of looking at the scene based on what both of yeah. their opinions are. But I think they both have their reasons. Uh, it, it does open up another strand in the film, which is subsequently that has been taped on phones. And of course, it's edited and put together. It goes out on social media and the whole cancel culture comes under the, the microscope as well. Was that a target for you? Oh, I don't have any opinion about that at all. I mean, I, I think that it this I, I set this as a contemporary story, but had I said it 10 years ago, the sort of um, her construction of her demise or her obliteration, as she would say, would have just been by other means. We've had scandal that goes all the way back to Greek storytelling. I don't think scandal is anything new. I think that um, the methodology and the tempo and the technology that's implemented, yes, that's new, but, but that's all it is, you know. Um, uh, we've had a, a a long time of of inequity in our in our culture and our workplaces, and yes, there's a big swing one way or the other right now, and um and, and there always isn't any kind of revolution, and and that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. I think. But but hopefully that will level out. Final question to to wrap up with then, Todd. Um, I'm wondering how you got all the authenticity. Uh, did you teach Kate Blanchett how to? The, act, the conducting techniques involved. Nina Haas, who plays Sharon, her violinist uh, partner in life as well. She looks as if she's playing the violin. And certainly Sophie Carr, who plays the young cellist, is playing the cello. And um, that authenticity is very is quite remarkable. Well, I mean, let's start with Kate. Kate had many teachers and she pursued her own um, autodidactic uh, methods. So um, in terms of conducting, she worked with 
Natalie Marie Beale, who is a friend of hers who teaches at the Royal College of Music and trained with Esapekka Solomon and is a conductor in her own right. She studied with a piano teacher um, to, to, to learn the piano and to be able to play the, 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 the Bach. Um, Sophie Cower, as you mentioned, uh, is an accomplished young cellist, and she's just uh, recorded with Deutsche Grammophon and has a big, big career as a musician ahead of her. Um, and her work as, as a as, as a first-time actor is, is quite quite something to look at. Um, as far as Nina Haas, Nina, uh, aside from being one of our greatest uh, actors and just a, a tremendous, tremendous uh, collaborator, um, I'd seen her do this Ina Weissa film called The Audition. I don't know if you've seen it or not, where she plays a violin, uh, a professional violinist and teacher who's has some kind of trauma and, and makes it heart very difficult for her to perform in public she's sort of hiding out um so all three of them that's diegetic music any every every note you see on screen is played in real time whether it's kate at the piano or her conducting or sophie playing or nina playing um it's all real and those are the takes uh, what you see wow. is what you get and um, that was very very important to all of us that we have that sense of authenticity oh, well i'll finish with one of those real pieces there the wonderful slow movement from Mahler five as we hear it in the film tar uh, todd fields thank you so much for speaking to us today todd and for sharing your thoughts on the film with us thank you i appreciate your time Please, 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 you must watch. Das ist ganz frei hier. Okay? It's got to be like a, just one person singing their heart out. And that's Kit Blanchett as Lydia Tarr in the film. Tarr, Todd Field, writer and director, speaking to us about it uh, before that particular clip. And Tarr, along with Megan and Ennis Men, will be the three movies that we'll be reviewing after the break. And now before we get to our film review, something to tell you about Tradfast Temple Bar. Of course, Tradfest Temple Bar now in its 18th year. As always, we on Arena are delighted to host a special opening concert featuring a variety of the artists who will be performing throughout the festival. Our concert will take place from 7pm until 9pm live from the Printworks in Dublin Castle. Among the artists with us on the evening will be Dervish, Danny Larkin, Neva, um, Louise Mulcahy, Mairead Maywaney, Bree Jean, the Word Up Collective, Lig- Jig Jam, Lorcan McMahona and Eamon Galdove. The concert itself will be two hours long. We'll be broadcasting the first hour live on Monday, January the 23rd. The second hour will be recorded and then broadcast on Wednesday, January the 25th. Now, a limited number of tickets available for the event priced at just €5. You need to log on to the website tradfesttemplebar.com tradfesttemplebar.com you'll see a link where you can get those tickets and if you get one of them make sure to be there at 6.30 on the evening of uh, Monday the Monday the 23rd because we will be going live at 7 and we don't want somebody clattering in 
when that's happening. Please, so get there for 6.30. Tradfest Temple Bar to find out more about the tickets and indeed everything at the happening at the festival. Tradfesttemplebar.com, that is, is the website. OK, let us move on then to our film reviews. Tar, as we've just heard, uh, directed by Todd Field, starring Kate Blanchett, uh, uh, the iconic Lydia Tar, the very first female conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Megan is a lifelike doll programmed to be a child's greatest companion, what could go wrong? Go wrong. Yes, the doll, the doll does take on a life of its own. And finally, Ennisman set in an, islis, an isolated Cornish island where a volunteer's daily observations of wildlife take a dark turn into the strange and the metaphysical. With me to discuss this film's uh, re- re- releases are Deirdre Malumbi and Chris Wasser. And let's um, talk about Tar. We just heard uh, Todd Field speaking to us about it there. Kate Planchette as this first female conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. He takes us into the world of classical music, Deirdre. Now, if you're not you, if you don't know that world, how difficult a place is it to get into? You know, I found the very start of this film as they were getting into this really kind of um, academic style of language and very technical and everything. I actually found it quite challenging to follow uh, personally. Do you know what? I'm I'm going to go to Chris and I think we'll get you to switch over to that other microphone because it doesn't seem to be. Is that what we do over to the other? Yes, we'll try the other microphone. Chris, um, maybe you could talk to me a little bit about uh, from the very opening scene, Lydia Tarr. She's quite an accomplished woman, isn't she? She is quite an accomplished woman and maybe if you are not uh, au fait with the classical music world or you know what it means to be a composer and a conductor um, the film probably doesn't make it easy for you in terms of some of the language that's used but eventually if you excuse the terrible puns that might come up in this review you do kind of fall into the rhythm you do kind of get to know that world a little bit and in terms of introducing the character and in terms of the work ethic of a composer this the Todd Field introduces this very clever framing device of having a real New Yorker journalist uh, his name is Adam Gott um, essentially performing this public interview with Lydia Tarr in New York. She's come from her home in Berlin where she's the chief conductor, the first female chief conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra to do this profile, to do this kind of, you know, this is your life sort of interview in front of an audience. So we have the film literally listing Mm. all of her achievements and bringing us into that world and telling us that this is a protege of Leonard Bernstein. You know, she is one of uh, history's few EGOT recipients. That's, you know, a, 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 a composer or an artist to receive an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar and a Tony that you know she's released uh, uh, countless million uh, selling and record-breaking albums she has uh, uh, conducted uh, four out of five of Mahler's symphonies and kind of what's left on her bucket list and what's setting the film up is that she is going to do a live recording in Berlin of Mahler's Fifth Symphony yeah, so that's it, all of her professional achievements yeah, there that, so that that's, it is quite a profession and that <laughs> which is I think where you were heading with it Deirdre that opening interview um, it, it really sets, it makes you feel, well, obviously she's a real conductor because there's a real uh, New Yorker writer there yeah. interviewing her and they're talking about Leonard Bernstein and they're talking about all these living conductors and living musicians that mm-hmm. makes it seem incredibly real. I found it very kind of difficult to follow initially between like the academic and the technical language and even as L- Lydia Tarr meets a number of her peers and fellow uh, lecturers in the uh, university that she teaches in, I, I found it very hard to follow initially. But to be honest with you, I just found Kate Blanchett's performance as Lydia so compelling that I didn't really care if I understood mm. absolutely everything that was coming out of her uh, mouth or not. Uh, people will probably be aware, but just in case not, Kate Blanchett actually won a Golden Globe 
Globe earlier this week for her uh, lead performance um in uh, Tar and she's really really extraordinary here I love that even in the way that she speaks she has such a beautiful musical quality to her voice and you really do believe in her as this incredibly accomplished uh, composer she's you know not afraid to show off that she has a very thorough uh, knowledge and understanding of the history of conducting and all of its fierce uh, sorry all of its key figures she's also a force to be reckoned with she's so admirable she's so fierce she's so driven but she's also incredibly threatening. You know, at one point she actually intimidates a little girl in, in the, the schoolyard school yeah, yeah. When, she, when she learns that she uh, this little girl has been picking on her daughter. And elsewhere we kind of get hints that um, yeah. she possibly destroyed a former student's career. And then this young uh, cellist kind of comes in and starts to uh, you know, uh, play with the Philharmonic although she yeah. hasn't been invited to be an official member yet. And her attitude towards her is quite questionable. Yeah, yeah. So it, we, it, it, as, as much as it is about the world of classical music and all the rest of it, it quite very quickly becomes about this character and the the dynamic around her in her home life and in her professional life. Um, what kind of dynamic is that, Chris? It very quickly, Sean, becomes this uh, uh, this this um, harrowing portrayal or, or, or depiction of a power player whose 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 empire has begun to crumble because you know we're introduced to this very successful composer to this very successful woman, but. Uh, then, then, then we see that all is not well. That the cracks are starting to show, and that she is essentially an abuser. And you know, there are whispers. You know, there are conversations between herself and her, and her loyal assistant uh, Francesca. That you know, this former fellowship student, you know, this Lydia Tarr fellowship program that's been established in her name. This student with who, whom she may have been romantically involved, her career is stalled, and that you know, that romance might not have been you know, uh, uh, not, maybe it wasn't consensual, but it might have ended badly between them and then she also kind of has this obsession even though she's married to her concert master uh, uh, wife uh, Sharon brilliantly portrayed by Nina Haas she also has this obsession with this new musician and she kind of hones in on, on, on younger female musicians and looks to kind of establish them in a, in a very senior role in the orchestra and everyone around the Philharmonic Orchestra they all know that you know there, there's unfair treatment here so there's only so long that that can go on and, and slowly but surely because of the pressure of also you know putting on this live recording this has always been at the top of her list maybe because of the pressure and also because of this sensitivity to sound that she's also developed over the years everything just starts to fall apart both in her professional and in her personal life and and that falling apart mm-hmm. while the, the beginning of the film is very realistic and all of that academic talk is you know straight out of the book as it were and then you get the conducting which is very real the playing which is very real yeah. and as Todd Field told us it's it's all happening in real time on the screen as as you're hearing it in the in the latter part of the film without giving anything away yeah. it does go off on a very different tangent it's really quite interesting because Tar becomes increasingly intriguing and haunting because more and more accusations start to arise Tar's behaviour becomes um, more and more questionable and really the extent of her abuses even though we perhaps don't see an awful lot on screen really becomes apparent mm. and it's only really a matter of days um, and, and as you're watching it unfold on the screen maybe the last 30 or 40 minutes or so that everything really starts to come crashing down and it's really quite fascinating because it is a long movie it runs to about 2 hours 40 minutes and you're on this journey with the character of Lydia Tarr um, for an extensive running time so it's really quite difficult because you really come to you know admire and appreciate her as a character mm. but at the same time you can't deny the abuse so there's this fascinating attraction but also repulsion 
tension that happens between um, you and uh, the characters. Yeah. You kind of see how cruel and surreptitious she can really be. Yeah, Todd Field is very good at asking questions and making you go search for the answers yourself. That's what he does for me. He certainly did in the film. What about that decision, though, uh, Chris? The fact that the first female conductor um, of this of the Berlin Fail. I know that's a fictional. I should say it's a fiction. She's a fictional uh, construct, but also that she is this powerful gay female woman in the music world. What about that decision to make her an abuser or, a, or an abusive character? I actually, I actually think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a clever and intriguing part of the story to kind of that that the that the film does yield this uh, sort of me to uh, narrative from a female perspective. And I know that Marin Alsop, you know, the world famous US conductor and composer came out this week and said that she was quite shocked and offended by the film because there are, you know, some critics have drawn parallels between the real life Marin Alsop in mm. terms of her professional accolades and in some and in some parts, you know, her, her personal life. Uh, though it should be said, not not the not the, the route that the film goes down in yes. terms of depicting Lydia Tarr as, as an abuser. But there are parallels in the professional uh, uh, in the professional way that 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 Mar- yeah, Marin they, also they, said that they, she's they, disappointed they, by us. Yeah, they, 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 not a possession, but she was a protege of Leonard Bernstein. She was big into the Mahler fifth, and she has this you know phenomenal conducting career and a, and a relationship with a, a first violinist in one of those uh, an open relationship with the first violinist in one of those um, orchestras. Yeah, absolutely. But, but 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 at the same time, it's a work of fiction, Sean. And although the film does go out of its way to kind of all, you know, paint this fully rounded figure, you know, we're, at some point, if you were to, you know, if you were to erase, you know, Kate Blanchett's illustrious CV from your mind, you could be mm. convinced that you're watching this, you know, portrayal of a real life figure. It is a work of fiction. And I think it's one that work, works ex- exceptionally well because of Kate Blanchett. I mean, Lydia Tara, as, as Deirdre was saying, you know, she is this force of nature. And in order to kind of fully convey that power, to, in order to fully convey that magnitude and to take us on a trip that the character goes through because as you say when we first meet Lydia Tarr we're quite we're in awe of her we're quite you know impressed by, by by what she's done with her career but as the story progresses over those three hours you know we become weary we, we become intimidated afraid and eventually horrified and just sad for this right. character and that's a hell of a trip and in order to kind of you know to, to, to pull that off you need a performer of you know of, of, of you know Kate magnificent Blanchett. clout yeah. and confidence and I think Kate Blanchett is that performer Alright uh, it sounds as if it worked for both of you <laughs> at it's two hours and almost is two hours forty minutes or thereabouts running time you finally judgment and stars from you Deirdre Yeah I think there's no denying that Tar like its lead character is an absolute force of nature of a, of a movie and its accomplishments as a character study I think are completely undeniable I particularly enjoy uh, seeing the scenes where she actually prepares for the live recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony you can see those images all over the posters she looks so majestic and is iconic watch this movie for Kate Blanchett's performance it is incredible four stars from me four stars what are you saying Chris I'm probably going to go the full five. Um, I just thought it was an exceptional piece of work and I think it's also designed to start a conversation and it's probably going to be a film where people will come away with conflicting uh, opinions, where people might have some arguments about what exactly Todd Field is trying to say about, you know, cancel culture, about the role of the conductor, about this power players, you know, as I say, this empire starting to crumble. What, what What's going on? Yeah. Everyone can come away with a different opinion so long as we all agree that Kate Blanchett is just unbeatable <laughs> here. So it's the full five. The full five from you, Chris. Okay, let us move on then uh, to the film 
Megan. It's spelled as if it was M3 Gan, which I suppose gives us a hint, Deirdre. Um, when her parents die tra- tragically in a, in a crash, a young girl goes to live with her aunt Gemma. And Gemma, who works as a robotic engineer at a toy company, struggles to relate to the little girl until she gives her this doll called M M E or M3 Gan, Megan. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about who or what Megan is. Yes, so Megan actually stands for Model 3 Generative Android, which you kind of wonder how long that took to come up with. Um, But yeah, but this is an interesting one because um, so uh, Katie's Aunt Gemma, she works as this robotics engineer at a toy company. And when uh, Katie comes to live with her, even though, you know, Gemma obviously loves her niece and everything, she's really struggling to relate. You can see how she's just telling Katie to go watch TV, even though Katie's parents told Mm. her she was only allowed 30 minutes of screen time. And Katie goes to play with what she thinks are toys. But Gemma informs her, no, these are collectibles. They are not to be played with, only to be looked at and observed. So really when uh, Megan, which is this, um, you know, model that Gemma has been working on for a number of years, but the company has uh, rejected to put it into full scale development because uh, she is too expensive, basically. Uh, When Gemma introduces Megan to Katie, there is something about this relationship that kind of clicks, but Gemma kind of gradually comes to realise that maybe that relationship is a bit too close. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to a scene where Katie and her aunt Gemma and Megan are all having dinner. Katie and Gemma are having an argument. Megan takes sides here and starts to show her true colours. You have to eat the toppings, Katie, not just the bread. You just did the one thing I asked you not to do. Research shows that if you force a child to eat vegetables, then they'll be less likely to choose those foods as adults. Is that so? Yes. Experts say the preferred method is to give your child the choice. It's called the division of responsibility. So we need to talk about school. Can I bring Megan? Katie, you know that's not possible. Then I'm not going. Oh, come on, Katie. Hey, I'm sorry. Let's just talk about it. Hey, hey, hey. Let me go. Whoa. Hey. What's going on? Hey, Katie. Go. What are you doing? Stop it. Katie, calm down. Let her go. Megan, turn off. Are you sure? (laughs) If your AI says, are you sure I should turn off, I think you're in slight trouble. Um, Although the doll that comes to life and turns out to be nasty is hardly a new idea, Chris. It's no, it's it's certainly not a new idea, but I think Megan is quite clever the way it goes about its business because it does acknowledge that you know this uh, you know this artificial intelligence doll, or in some cases we've seen it before, possessed doll, you know, or you know, uh, uh, wreaking unholy havoc on its terrified owners. We've seen that in Chucky. We've seen that in Annabelle. What can we do with it here? Well, we can actually go down the sci-fi route a little bit more. And actually, I mentioned Annabelle, James Wan, who created that Conjuring universe, serves as a producer and is given a story credit here. And working alongside Jason. Bloom and the director Gerald uh, Jared Johnstone and the screenwriter Kayla Cooper, they've come up with something uh, very, very, you know, that that is genuinely effective as a horror, but probably because they they don't take it too seriously. The the you know the secret weapon of Megan, I think, is its sense of humor. Is this placement of satire in the story, which is that you know it's setting us up, it's setting up this story that you know humanity is addicted to our devices and, and our smartphones, and and you know kids are, are parents will give kids anything to mm. kind of shut them up or to help 
help them overcome something like in Katie's case, grief. So what if we gave them this doll that turned out to you know be more loyal to them than 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 a human could be? That's not going to end well. And let's throw a few jokes in there as well. So I think it's that sense of humor that helps along because yeah. even when you're listening to that clip there, you can't help but laugh. Even when you see Megan move, you can't help but laugh. And James Wan, Jared Johnstone, they know this and they lean into it. Is, is horror is classifying it as a horror maybe then a mistake? Do you think, Deirdre? It's almost more of a horror comedy, to be mm. honest with you, because there's not an awful lot that's particularly scary about Megan. Um, there's a little bit of gore and bloodshed, but to be honest, most of it is kind of saved for that uh, final act and much of the violence occurs off screen. Um, sometimes it's the bits that, you know, don't involve a lot of kind of blood that are, are the more violent ones. Like I'm thinking about there's this one scene involving uh, a little boy which has this disturbing uh, likeness to a sexual uh, assault, which is actually much more disturbing than when you see, you know, Megan running down the hallway with the sword going to <laughs> kill a bunch of people. Um, and you'll you'll see what I mean when you watch the film. I don't want to give away too much here. But yeah, I think that Chris is exactly... Um, on the ball there with the whole idea that it's very self-aware of how um, ridiculous it is. And I would probably describe it as a horror comedy. The audience that I went to see it with uh, laughed at several points in it. For my money, I would have liked if there were maybe a few more twists and turns and surprises in the story than it ended up having. I think that I could see everything coming a mile away, including an ending that may have had one or two references to The Terminator, which I feel like I was like, I could have written that. Uh, yeah. But it it's, but at the same time, I think that it's really effective in other ways, including, um, you know, its message about technology and how we're how we're becoming so reliant on the world of tech. And the result is this coldness, this lack of humanity. I was particularly struck by the scene in which um, there's a child psychologist who visits uh, Katie, kind of checking in on her and seeing how she's coping with the loss of her parents. And she tells Alison that she's really concerned by the fact that Katie has grown such an attachment to Megan in that she's being taught by her, listening to her and Megan is also protecting her and she's ultimately fulfilling uh, this role mm. of the parent which Alison is meant to be doing. Yeah, and Alison, we should say, uh, oh, Alison sorry, Williams. Gemma. Yeah, Alison Williams <laughs> plays Gemma. Violet McGraw plays Katie. Amy McDonald plays uh, uh, Megan, the, the little robotic doll. And Ronnie Chang is in there too as Gemma's boss, David. Uh, did it work overall for you? Did you, did, were you, were you? Were you happy enough to laugh rather than be horrified by it all, Chris? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I had a blast with this, uh, particularly so because I, once I saw that trailer, Sean, I thought this looks terrible. This is nothing that we haven't seen before. This looks absolutely ridiculous. It's going to take itself too seriously. It's going to be like so many kind of, you know, pointless sequels in James Bond's Conjuring Universe that I mentioned. It's not. It's better than that. It's it's lean. It's clever. It's funny. It's freaky. And it's undeniably entertaining. And also it gets the job done in less than 100 minutes. And it does set up, you know, the inevitable sequels. I'd say this is going to be the next successful comedy horror franchise. But that's okay, uh, because the first one I just thought was a hoot, so I'm going to give it four stars. All right, four stars for you. But of course, M4GAN won't work in quite the same way as M3GAN in, in terms of how it looks. Stars from you on this one, Deirdre? Yeah, I found this to be more of probably a tween horror than an all-out fright fest. Um, it is entertaining enough, um, and I've read kind of subsequent readings on it that's made me grow to appreciate it more. I just would have liked to be a little more surprised by it. So three and a half for me. Three and a half from you. Let's move on then to our final uh, film this evening. Ennis Men. It means Stone Island in Cornish, of course. Ennis a bit like Inish, I suppose there. And it's certainly to a stony, isolated place that this film takes us. The year is 1973. The main character is a woman who records daily observations of a rare flower. Tell us a little bit about this uh, woman 
Mary Woodvine is her name, Chris. Yeah, Mary Woodvine is her name, and as you said, the uh, the year is nineteen seventy three, and she's the sole inhabitant of this uh, of this rocky island off the Cornish coast, and she is there uh, essentially to record, uh, you know, uh, changes in the in, in in the wildlife, and she's been there for quite quite some time. We're not quite aware how long it's been, but she seems to have her daily ritual, just you know, all sewn up. She gets up, she gets dressed, and she uh, journeys on down to the foot of this of of, of a cliff, and she observes these these she observes these uh, beautiful wildflowers. And she looks at them, she takes the temperature of the soil. And before going back to the cottage to take note of any changes in the flowers, and weeks go by and there are no changes, she always drops a stone down this tin mine, down this, the, 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 this peculiar shaft at the bottom of the, of, of the cottage. And she waits for it to splash in the water. And it's almost kind of telling yeah. us that, yes, this is a woman of science, but also there might be some sort of superstition here. And that is essentially how the day goes out. She then goes back, she reads this environmentalist text, goes to bed, repeat, repeat, repeat. But as the film progresses, we kind of get a sense that maybe she's been here too long. All of these strange things start happening, but we're yeah. never quite sure of whether they've happened, whether they're going to happen, or whether they're all in their head. And there's very little in her by way of dialogue. Here's a clip, I think it's about what a good 15 minutes in before we actually hear a voice apart from some singing on the radio. And this is with Mary's back, to Mary Woodvine's back to us, and she's speaking on the, the radio to uh, somebody at the other side that we, we, we don't really know too much about either. Very banal conversation. Not really. How's the work? Fine. That's why I'm here. Supply boat will be here soon. Are you running short? Petrol's low. And I'm nearly out of tea. Nearly out of tea was the the climax of that of that mon- what is it, monologue little dialogue on on the radio. That's Mary Woodvine, um, in in the film Ennis Man, directed by Mark Jenkins. It is very slow. It, it's quite there's a beauty in the in the, in mm-hmm. the look of it. Does much happen, and is that important, Deirdre? Not much happens at all. And to be honest, I kind of started getting quite quite bored by it. I do want to address, though, you mentioned um, the beauty of the film, and that is something to highlight here because it is gorgeous to look at. Uh, there's a slightly grainy quality to the cinematography, which complements the fact that it's set in the 1970s. And it's a really beautifully uh, textured, textured island that uh, this is set on between all the grasses and rocks. And you have, you know, these close-ups going on on the bugs and birds and other uh, wildlife. And, and big sound design as well. Big sounds, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because, there, like you were saying, there's very little uh, dialogue, but then you can get these very sudden sounds, such as when she uh, turns on the generator that kind of make you jump a, <laughs> jump a bit back into life. And even shots such as when she's uh, dropping that uh, rock down uh, the well, I found quite unnerving because I was like, oh, is something going to jump up here? And yeah. I'd read this film uh, being described somewhere as a faux car. So <laughs> I personally yeah. felt a bit on edge all yeah. throughout this film. Uh, but yeah, in terms of stuff that's actually happening, I think for me anyway, one of the flaws with 
um, Ennis men was um, when it gets into her routine, um, as Chris was describing there, her going down the cliff edge, um, you know, uh, having her tea and, um, you know, observing this flower and writing down her observations, etc. I think they spent a little bit too long on this because the film tracks in at about 90 minutes and at least the first 30 minutes are the same thing over and over. And I find myself starting to get a bit bored by it so that when, you know, this whole mystery starts starts to unfold and you start getting into the surrealist material, I had already somewhat checked out. And I think that's kind of a shame. Yeah. And there is another character that appears, but we can't talk too much about that because it probably gives too much away. Um, What are you saying overall about this one, Chris? I think it is beautiful to look at. I think uh, it was shot in grainy 16mm. Mark Jenkins has done a great job with the the, 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 the cinematography in terms of the film, in, in, in terms of how it's presented visually. I think two great tricks that it pulls off is that it genuinely looks like something that was made 50 years ago. And it also, in, in, in giving us a film that is clearly detailing what, you know, the effects of solitude and what it's like to watch someone lose their mind, it's designed in a way as to make the viewer think that they might be doing the same thing too. Uh, but I still found it an absolute slog and I just need more from it. I needed more than just story. I needed just even a little bit of plot, which I know is an awful lot to ask for from, you know, uh, experimental expressionistic filmmaking, but I just thought it was all ideas and mystery. I just needed a bit more structure and maybe a bit more of a payoff. So I, it's not an experience I would like to repeat, Sean. So I'd say I'll be going with two stars on this one. And what are you saying, Deirdre? Yeah, I'm completely 100% with Chris here. I've just found it boring and monotonous and unfortunately there isn't a satisfying conclusion after all of that build-up um, and the mystery of the story of perhaps what happened to this volunteer's family, um, it just doesn't have a great emotional impact for me. So it's two stars from me as two well. Two from you as well. That's Ennis Men at Selected Cinemas, while the other two, Megan and certainly Tar on general release and a lot of eyes on Tar in terms of the Oscar buzz in the coming weeks as well. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Chris Mull- Chris Wasser and Deirdre Balumby are two reviewers on this Thursday evening. New TV series The Last of Us is based on the groundbreaking 2013 video game of the same name. It is set 20 years after worldwide infection has caused civilization itself to crumble. The story focuses on Joel, played by Pedro Pascal, who is hired to smuggle 14-year-old Ellie from a quarantine zone to safety. Their road trip is prone to bad weather and filled with people ready to kill them, not to mention plenty of nasty zombies. Created by Craig Mazan, who wrote the suspenseful drama Chernobyl, it is a post-apocalyptic story perfectly relatable to today. Or is it? Uh, Dave Hanratty is here to answer that question. Uh, he's been watching The Last of Us for us. And you are a big fan of the game, I think, as well. Dave, just give us a little bit of background on the game and is that important to watching the series? Um, it's it's important for fans, for sure, who've been waiting for this for 10 years. The game came out in 2013 on the mm. PlayStation 3. There's been remakes and remasters ever since. Uh, it's estimated to have sold well over 20 million copies to date. So people have been fan casting this for a very long time. They wanted to feature film. HBO picked it up. But crucially, and for everyone listening, if you've never played this game, if you've never played a video game, do not worry, you can jump in. You'll be familiar in terms of it's a post-apocalyptic setting, kind of in the same vein as like The Walking Dead, Station Eleven, Snowpiercer, that kind of stuff that we are getting a lot of. But it's been 10 years in the making, and I think whether you're a fan who's been counting the days or you're listening to this now for the first time and you're slightly intrigued, Mm. there's an awful lot of pressure on this. Yeah, and when you think 10 years in the making, I'm going to play a clip from the very opening scene in the series, in fact, where we have John Hanna on a TV show, and we're in 1968, 
and just listen to what they're talking about in 1968 on the telly. True, fungi cannot survive if its host's internal temperature is over 94 degrees. And currently there are no reasons for fungi to evolve to be able to withstand higher temperatures. But what if that were to change? What if, for instance, the world were to get slightly warmer? Well, now there is reason to evolve. One gene mutates and an Ascomycetia, Candida, Ergot, Cordyceps, Aspergillus, any one of them could become capable of borrowing into our brains and taking control not of millions of us, but billions of us. Billions of puppets with poisoned minds permanently fixed on one unifying goal, to spread the infection to every last human alive by any means necessary. And there are no treatments for this, no preventatives, no cures. They don't exist. It's not even possible to make them. So if that happens, we lose. There we go. John Hanna in the uh, an opening sequence from The Last of Us new TV series that Jeff Hanratty is talking to us about this evening. So they have global warming in there <laughs> and they have a global pandemic in there. And this is all 10 years in the making well before well, I suppose global warming has been an issue for a long, long time. Um, but it really is, is, is prescient, that 1963 set, or 68 piece of uh, footage, isn't it? Yeah, cheery stuff, I know. And like, this might be a lot for people to take in January of 2023. Like, you, you don't want your escapist entertainment to necessarily reflect the world you're in. But of course, uh, this is also a lot more epic and a lot more, like there are actual monsters in the show, of course. But that scene there, that was new for the show. The show mostly sticks to the script in terms of what the game gave you. And the game I should say did give you an amazing story that's one of the reasons why people love it so much is because it was genuinely compelling it did feel cinematic and in the I guess the execution of bringing this to the screen they very very wisely Craig Mazin who made Chernobyl which was a brilliant mm. miniseries from a couple of years ago awesome HBO himself and Neil Druckmann who made the game have very very wisely stuck to the story with that and of course it's lead characters yeah, and, and so we get that 1968 scene. Then we jump to 2003. The world is in a state of chastis, as Sean O'Casey might say, at that point in time, for sure. Yeah, we get um, Pedro Pascal's character, a man called Joel Miller, who seems fairly happy in his life. He's got a daughter, he's got a brother. It's white picket fence America. It looks yeah. all good. And then uh, out of nowhere, this outbreak occurs. People begin to turn into literal monsters and the world's society and civilization crumbles before them. Then we jump forward again, 20 years. Joel... Pedro Pascal, who's a wonderful actor, by the way. Uh, he's now hardened by tragedy and trauma. He's a very formidable smuggler. He's given a mission. He has to take a 14-year-old girl across America. She herself is quite defiant, played by Bella Ramsey, who people have seen on Game of Thrones. Pedro Pascal, of course, also in Game of Thrones. And it's about their relationship together and, of course, the many, many dangers that they will face along the way. Yeah, It does take a while. There's a lot of setups, 1968, 2003, then 2023, which is the, the kind of the bulk of the series, before we get into the meat of this relationship between Pedro Pascal's character and Bella Ramsey's character. Could, could we have got there quicker? We could have got there quicker, but I will say from that moment, like the first episode is about an hour and 20 minutes long, mm. so it's almost a film, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I think Bella Ramsey doesn't show up until halfway through it, at least. There's, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of backstory. It's a very compelling backstory, though. And I think yeah. as it goes along, the pacing does increase quite dramatically. I mean, once you get to 2023, essentially, it does go from episode to episode with new threats, new cliffhangers, new characters, an awful lot of tension. And I think... I quite enjoyed the the kind of the relative slowness in those first couple like episode or two. I thought it was a nice way of bedding you into the world and kind of taking it quite seriously. 
and it is a serious show. I mean, there's not a lot of levity here. Mm. It is a very, very bleak uh, TV show, I suppose, for people to kind of throw on week to week. But I think if you're into this kind of thing and if you're crucially into the emotion of what the characters will go through, it should hook you in. And it is a lot of it boils down or centres around that relationship between the Pedro Pascal character and and the Bella Ramsey character. There's a wonderful chemistry between them. You know, it's 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 like a father-daughter type of relationship, really, isn't it? Yeah, not to give too much away, but Joel himself, you know, for like he doesn't want to trust people. He doesn't want to have mm. a young girl in his life. He doesn't want to, like, reach out to people in that way. He is stoic and silent and tough. And here's this girl out of nowhere who is going to like, you know, kind of tug on his shirt and annoy him. Uh, and again, they're in this world where like, like it's not just the monsters, it's the people. The people are the monsters as well. So those two together, and it, sh- it should be said, like they were both in Game of Thrones, but they didn't share scenes together. Yeah. They were two very, very different characters at different times during the show's run. They're magnificent. Um, I, I, I wish there was even more episodes than we got because I've seen the whole season and their relationship that evolves is fantastic. The two actors are magnificent. I mean, like when they were cast, there was some slight back clash from people who've played the game to death and they're like nah she doesn't look like Ellie he doesn't look like Joel Mm. that's nonsense it takes one scene and you're like that's Ellie that's the Ellie I know who I played in that game and Pedro Pascal you know granted you might say well he's the Mandalorian he's on TV a lot already you know is that distracting maybe initially but I think as it goes along they're dynamite together and they have an incredible range of emotions that come out over time that are very very much earned and she's she the character of Ellie played by Bella Ramsey quite a clever young woman and she spots this book on in his in his the place that they're holed up in at one point it would it's super monster hits from diff, different decades in the 20th century and then she starts to have a chat with him about oh I was listening to something there listening to a song and she kind of teases him and and works quite well at getting stuff out of him let's have a listen to the two of them in action together I've never been on the other side of the wall. Look how dark it is. You guys go out there a lot? I guess. When was the last time? Maybe a year, what's it matter? But you know where to go. So we're gonna be okay. Yeah. So what's the deal with you anyway? You some kind of bigwig's daughter or something? Something like that. Oh, the radio came on when you were sleeping. What? What was the song? They kept saying, like, like, wake me up before you go-go. Shit. Gotcha. 80s means trouble. Code broken. So she is clever. Is Ellie played by Bella Ramsey in that scene from The Last of Us and Joel played by Pedro Pascal there. I was asking as we were listening to that, uh, Dave, there is a very, there are kind of parallels with The Handmaid's Tale here in terms of the way the society is run, I suppose it is. It's a, it's a dystopian future. Um, what, what kind of ideas are being explored there? There's various different factions as they go from place to place. There is military rule in some, in some places. I mean, like Joel himself is a smuggler and he kind of works with some of the military officers on the slide to kind of get stuff from them and vice versa. But there's also places that like it's punishable by death if you leave the quarantine zone or if you steal yeah. food or that kind of thing. So like I said, I mean, it is a bit of a tried and tested thing. And I think if anything goes against the show, it might be the fact that we are very familiar with shows like The Handmaid's Tale and the aforementioned stuff and even films like 28 Days Later and so on and so forth. So the idea that like, well, we are the real monsters, you know, like like look what has become of us and how we treat each other Mm. now. That isn't a new idea. That might be a bit old hat for people. But I think that the show through its casting, because the supporting characters, some of whom only show up for one episode at a time, are absolutely brilliant. And through its writing, 
get gets away with it. I mean, like I say, it's familiar terrain and it's very, very bleak. Just a warning for anyone. Don't watch it with your kids. This is not a show for young people. <laughs> yeah. And you found it quite emotional in places. Yeah, big time, yeah. And the game is emotional too. I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not ashamed to say it, Sean. Mm. I cried playing that video game and I cried watching this show. Uh, and largely because some of the writing and some of the character beats are, are beautiful. They're devastatingly beautiful. And the acting that's put into this uh, show, this adaptation, matches it or even kind of elevates it. And not to give too much away, but there is a supporting character who shows up early into the season and they take that character from the game and add to their world, even add people into their world. And it's almost like a standalone episode. People will know it when they see it. It's already getting huge praise from the critics who have seen the show and it will continue to do so. And it broke my heart. Yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> the Guardian actually, and you're talking about the critics talking about it. TV finally has the perfect video game adaptation. That sounds as if you're in agreement. Any negatives? Um, pacing is a bit too fast, I will say. Uh, the best video game adaptation thing I would agree with, that's kind of a poison chalice. There's not that many great video game adaptations right. out there. Mortal Kombat from 1995, trashes it is, it's still probably the best. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a bit familiar for me because I've, I've played the game, but I can't really knock the show for that. And I will say, I'm genuinely envious of anyone who goes into the show having never played the game, because if you don't know where the story is going, as compelling as it is for me, it'll be more compelling for you. All right, well, that's uh, hyper. And you think not, you don't need to know the game at all? Not just, at all. Just like I say, in. you might be even at an advantage if you don't. It's great. Okay, it's great, is Dave Hanratty's judgment there. The Last of Us will be available on Sky Atlantic and the streaming service now from Monday the 16th of January. New episodes weekly. Each new episode will be available from 2am. Stay up late. If you want to stay (laughs) up late. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening here on Arena. Leah Murphy, Amandine Passo-Divine and Paula Shields researched. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Bookless was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Keishi. I will talk to you again tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, once again, here on RT Radio 1. And Fikno Brainon will be with you after the news.